So yesterday we looked at the chapter on silence and we saw Benedict is quite brief, quite, quite abrupt really in what he says about silence. But he points to something essential not only to his understanding of the, of the monastic journey and monastic uh, life, but also uh, something essential to our work as a community uh, to pass on this work of silence in the gift of meditation. It's a very nice little book, uh, not so little I think actually, but called by Maggie Ross. Mm. Any of you come across that? Yeah. What is it called? The Work of Silence. No, Silence. Into the Silence. No, it's, no, it's called Silence, uh, a User's Guide. <laughs> Silence and User's Guide. Um, it's, uh, it's a really excellent um, uh, investigation and reflection on, on the meaning of silence and something I think that you know, a meditator uh, can resonate with very, um, very, very clearly. So we looked at uh, uh, Benedict's understanding or his... his, his insistence that silence is a renunciation of something good. You know, if you give up smoking, that's not really a renunciation. You're giving up something that's bad for you, something you should give up. But a renunciation is something good that, for good reasons, you decide to renounce. For example, uh, you may feel that you have the right to retaliate verbally or otherwise, to some harm that somebody has done to you. And you have a right to do that, and it, it, it is a defensible right. But you renounce that right in order to practice the teaching of nonviolence, for example. So renunciation is giving up something that is essentially good, but for a better reason, or for, for, for a, a deeper reason. And uh, so this is, I think, is how we can understand what Benedict is saying when he, he tells us that we should uh, you know, not, not be laughing and joking all the time and we should uh, practice silence continuously, uh, not just after Compline, not just at certain times of the day. It's very easy to take uh, a teaching like that, an injunction like that, and to turn it into a rule. And people sometimes speak about the rules of St. Benedict when they, they, when they haven't really uh, become very familiar with, with the rule. They, they, they talk about the rules as if it were a kind of a code, of, a legal code or um, instructions that you have to fulfill. And it's very easy for us to turn these insights and directions and guidelines uh, of Benedict into merely legislation that we have to impose and uh, we feel that we are um, obeying the rules. And that isn't really uh, the spirit of the rule of St. Benedict. And an indication of that is the fact that 
the rule itself is full of exceptions. For every rule that you find in the rule, there is an exception. There's a, there's a way out. Uh, pretty well, anyway. And this shows us that the, the, the spirit of the rule is not legalistic or legislative, but it is sapiential or it's wise. It's based on experience, maybe his whole lifetime of experience. We don't know much about how Benedict wrote his rule or how he adapted it from the rule of the master. It seems as if it was the work that he was working on for, you know, over a long period of time. Uh, so it, 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 uh, he was probably tinkering with it, you know, uh, continuously and sharpening it and refining it and adding or subtracting things as he, as he felt. Um, so it's very much a, a compendium of experience presented with very clear and crisp uh, style, um, but not to encourage us just to substitute blind obedience or rule keeping for discretion. For Benedict, discretion is the mother of virtue. This is the great virtue of the uh, of the desert tradition, the desert wisdom. Um, we have stories that suggest that when Evagrius uh, came to the desert, he was treated with some, if not contempt, at least uh, some suspicion, because he was he was an intellectual. He you know, came from a a worldly, worldly position, and uh, and they, the older uh, monastics of the desert, uh, were suspicious of that because that wasn't what the desert was about. It wasn't about talking or, or writing or uh, discussing. It was about a practice, a practice that was taught more by example than by words, and certainly by rules. So they were a little suspicious of Evagrius at first, but then uh, they seemed to come round to accepting him because they said that um, despite these qualities uh, that he brought, which were suspicious in themselves, he had discretion, and that was the great compliment. Not that he was holy or virtuous or he, he obeyed all the rules, but that he had discretion. He had this quality of discernment, this ability to see what was appropriate, what was right in a particular situation. So for, for Benedict too, of course, discretion, the ability to evaluate situations and apply general principles or particular rules with compassion, with flexibility. This, this is why, of course, the rule has survived as such a, a great wisdom document. So we looked at uh, his attitude towards silence, and we also looked at the office. And the office is words, it's singing or chanting or reciting uh, the words of the Psalms over and over again, the prayer book of the church. and. Um, so it's the vocal prayer. How does it relate to silence? It relates to silence because these times of the office are seen as particular strong moments in which 
we remember, we are reminded, or we, and we remind each other because we turn up at these times of prayer together, we are reminded that the purpose of being there at all is to develop our experience of continuous prayer, to enter into that continuous prayer that John Maine says is the prayer of Jesus flowing in our hearts continuously. It's not my prayer, it's not my saying prayers or thinking prayers, it's my being swept out of ourselves, as Father John says, into that stream of love that flows between Jesus and his Father, the stream of love that is the Spirit. So the whole purpose of the life, and of any Christian life, uh, accentuated by the, uh, the life as lived in the room, is to come into the state of continuous prayer. So let's look uh, today a little bit at what Benedict says about prayer. And in chapter 52, this is some of the things he says about prayer. When he speaks about the oratory of the monastery. The oratory ought to be what it is called, place of prayer, and nothing else is to be done or stored there. So, as in any building, you know, after a few years, uh, you start running out of space and you look for places where you can uh, store um, all the leaflets that you haven't been able to get rid of or <laughs> something else. So, uh, he says, no, don't do that. Keep the, the, keep the space clear, because the, the clear openness, the uncluttered uh, style of the oratory reflects how we want to be interiorly when we come to prayer. After the work of God, or after the office, everyone should leave in complete silence. So, when the final prayers of the uh, office are recited, it doesn't mean that you can then take out your phones and start texting, or that you run up across the oratory to speak to somebody about something you've been meaning to catch them about all day. So you, you leave this sacred space in silence. It's very helpful, I think, even when it comes to running a meditation group. You know, sometimes uh, it's good to advise people, recommend to people that they should remain still and, and quiet until after the third bell, because otherwise they tend to start you know, moving around or uh, jumping out of the meditative silence uh, as soon as the first bell goes. So the idea of having a kind of an extension of that spirit of prayer, even when the formal moment of prayer is officially uh, over. <clears throat> and why? They should leave in complete silence and with reverence for God. So that spirit of silence is reverence. Uh, 
brother or sister who may wish to pray alone will not be disturbed by the insensitivity of another. So, it's a very uh, interesting, subtle little remark in the rule, because generally, Benedict doesn't say, you know, you can do what you like, and use your time as you like. He's usually quite specific about the timetable. But here he's saying, after prayer, it may well be that you want to stay on and to pray alone. This is something you see in um, Orthodox monasteries, uh, where the services are very long. And um, I was at one Orthodox monastery once, and the, the liturgy just went on and on and on, and we're standing all the time. But then I realized that uh, it was okay to sit down, because the monks would sit down, not, not just because they were tired, maybe they were tired as well, but not so much because they were tired, but because they had come to an interior prayer. And it was as if everybody just quietly recognized that the external form of prayer was designed, the whole purpose of it was to help to awaken that inner interior prayer. And that when once that had begun to flow, uh, you can sit down, you can sort of quietly detach yourself from the, uh, the, the liturgy going on around you, the outward form of prayer. Done very subtly, and it wasn't seen as opting out of that prayer, but it was really expressing what that outward prayer was for. It's a little bit similar, I think, to what Benedict is saying here. And he protects the, uh, the monk who wants to do that from the insensitivity of the other monks who have just you know, finished their prayer and now can start chatting about you know, anything. And I think that's, that's also very interesting for us if we translate that into, say, a time of retreat, that the uh, you know, people sometimes come late to the to the meditation, especially the first meditation. So, you know, the first meditation is very silent. Um, well, they're all silent, but this is particularly silent because usually we don't have any introduction or any conclusion. It's just the pure meditation of the bell. So it's a very pure, lovely moment way of beginning the day. But then you'll have somebody on the retreat who, come, who comes in 15 minutes late. And it's just insensitive, it's just insensitive. They're not bad, they're not trying to disturb other people. But they're just not conscious yet. They will be, but they're not conscious yet. But that's what they're doing. They're just thinking, well, oh, I'm late for meditation, but I'll, I'll go in anyway, because I'd like to do it. I'd like to do it. Without being conscious of the disturbance uh, that they're causing to others. So, I think we, we can translate this idea of protecting the, the, the silence of the 
meditation from uh, external, uh, unnecessary external noise. And same is true, I think, you know, uh, uh, when people are new to meditation, uh, it doesn't occur to them that if they take out a sweet halfway through the meditation and start unwrapping it, you know, that is going to attract most people's attention unless they've been lifted up to a very high level of prayer. They're going to hear this, and it's going to be slightly irritating, or at least it will, it will, divert, it will be distracting. Or if they, you know, if they cough, uh, they, they can cough in a mindful way rather than in a self-expressive way. <laughs> so that that comes that comes with, with with time. You become more sensible, and we develop a contemplative courtesy, contemplative politeness. Really, and just it, it amounts like all courtesy, all politeness. It's about sensitivity to others, and respecting the space and the needs of others, not in, intruding on it unnecessarily. So I think this is another way we can extend Benedict's uh, insight here into our circumstances. And then he goes a little bit further. He says, moreover, if at other times someone chooses to pray privately, they may simply go in and pray. So that's why the oratory should Nothing else should be done there. It should be a quiet space. And um, it's um, in universities or office buildings where they, or even airports, uh, where they often have prayer spaces now. Uh, it's, it's very important, or at Georgetown University, where we have the meditation uh, building, it's very important that nothing else is done there. At Georgetown, we, we leave the door open all the time, and uh, anybody can go in and meditate there and be in silence there. And uh, we don't sort of police it, but I think people get that idea. It's not a place to go and write your paper or uh, do your emails, but it's a place you know, just to be silent. So. So this is why, so that somebody who spontaneously feels drawn to pray alone outside of the scheduled times uh, is welcomed by that space. This is a very important concept of sacred space that is kept clear and protected for that purpose. So they may simply go in and pray, not in a loud voice, but with tears and heartfelt devotion, or application of heart, as it's sometimes called. Accordingly, anyone who does not pray in this manner is not to remain in the oratory after the work of God, as we have said. And then he will not interfere with anyone else. So this is an unusual uh, moment in the rule. Albert Vogue points this out. There's nothing in the rule of the Master or St. Augustine, the rule of St. Augustine, both of which influence Benedict. There's nothing to quite capture, uh, that quite captures what he's saying here. 
that sensitivity to the spontaneity of, of silent prayer and also the need to protect the person who is called or feels called to that silence from being uh, inter interfered with or interrupted or distracted by other people who are making a noise, even if they're praying. That's what he's saying here. <coughs> so, if you want to pray outside of the time of, of the office, um, you can do so, but you go into the oratory to be silent, and it's not the place to go and pray in a loud voice, which presumably they, they were able to do and did as well in, in other spaces at other times. So we, we have to, you know, have to remember that these early uh, members of Benedict's community were heart, you know, were, were heartfelt prayers. I mean, they went there to pray. This was their work. And they didn't, Benedict is saying, don't think you've done your duty. It's, you've fulfilled your obligations to pray just because you've done the office. This, this is something we find in monastic life today, or probably at any point in history. Um, and I meet many monks who, who say they don't have time to meditate. Uh, and because it's a very busy, busy life, as they've got jobs in the monastery and uh, everything else that's going on, uh, they don't have much free time and so and the, and the office takes up quite a lot of time and it's quite frequent in some monasteries maybe it's five, five or six times a day depends so they will often say they don't have time to meditate and you know one said to me the other day if i do i have to get up you know at five o'clock but he does he gets up at five o'clock he goes down to the chapel meditates and the office i think starts at quarter to six or something so, um, so the Benedict is clearly, clearly understands that the, the purpose of the office is to create the framework of life that reminds you that prayer is a continuous occupation or a continuous reality, and that needs even and even if you don't respect that or feel that at any particular moment. You must be sensitive to that as a shared value in the community and allow somebody else to, to do it if they wish. So it's a very, it's uh, that chapter 52 is one that has, in subtle ways, very important um, principles of prayer in community, something we'll try and put into practice at Bonbon. So, um, Benedict is, is concerned by the noise caused by those who pray in a loud voice. Um, he's concerned about maintaining the spirit of reverence and by not thinking that prayer stops when the office stops. Okay. 
And in this, he is part of a, a very ancient tradition. And we can see that when he says, go in and pray, not in a loud voice, but with tears and compunction of heart, or heartfelt devotion, I mean, not, not such a good translation, I mean. compunction of heart. And you might just think about that for a moment. The word, uh, the monastic word, the Greek word that is uh, used to describe this um, experience of, of tears and compunction of heart is pentos, P-E-N-T-H-O-S. It's a very good book by Irene Haushair um, on pentos in the Cistercian, the Cistercian publications. Pentos is a uh, originally was the name of the Greek goddess for grief, or mourning, or lamentation. Um, and it, it reminds us, of course, of the Beatitude. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who have pentos. For they shall be comforted. What happens to those who mourn in the Beatitudes? Be comforted. Huh? Be comforted. They shall be comforted, yeah. So, this is rather a countercultural idea for us today to recognize the, the spiritual value of grief, mourning, lamentation, sadness of heart. Um, This is part of the whole monastic, particularly the Eastern Christian monastic uh, understanding of the, of the power of tears. I meet people occasionally, not that often, but people who will, when they're starting to meditate usually, and uh, they suddenly find themselves weeping, with tears falling down their cheeks during meditation. And they're a bit, you know, worried about this. And it's not, they say that they're feeling depressed or they're feeling particularly sad. It just seems to be an overflow. And uh, of course, then one reassures them that this, you know, they're not the only people who occasionally will find this overflow happening. And. Um, that it was in fact even regarded as a grace that the desert monks called us prayed for the gift of tears. And what 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 are the why could we think of tears in prayer, even physical tears? Why why could we think what 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 does that denote? What does that suggest? Cleansing. A cleansing, yes. Rejoicing in what form do you mean? Um, just this um, connection with God totally Okay, yes. And in fact there, there is this combination actually of sadness and joy. Mm -hmm. You ever felt that? Mm -hmm. I think C.S. Lewis say that, that joy was intense longing. Mm. 
joy is intense longing. Yeah, yeah, and it's that longing, that sadness that um, about this event or baby or whatever mm -hmm. of the, the beauty. And I think with your connection is the word. When I've come to tears like that, mm -hmm. it's it feels that it's because of the connection with the divine. Mm. Yes, thank you. What else? Yes, uh, one time, for me, it felt like tears that I'd never cried. Oh, tears you've never cried before. Mm. And so what, what, what came with that? What feeling did that bring? Relief. Relief, yeah. The parents of the bride are always... The? I, I had three daughters, Mary, and parents, I don't know any parents of the bride who are dry-eyed. <laughs> yes, okay, everybody, yes. It's the joy of this new life that she's entering, but the, the life she's leaving, it's a, a combination it's of nice. feelings yeah, that come. Yeah, so people who, yeah, who cry at, at how, how many people cry at weddings? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it is that. It's, it's very good insight. It's, it's a combination of joy. That um, that they they found someone and they're in, in a new life, starting a new life, and also sadness because you're losing them or they are moving out of a, one life into another. Yes, thank you. And what about love? Because tears happen for some. There's no sadness or consciousness of what we label human emotion. But it's something that goes deeply than words. Mm. And love encompasses all. Mm. So could it not be the depth of love that the human is supposed to allow you to touch? Yes. Well, I think that's, that's good. I mean, love is more than emotions. And uh, well, love, can, love can contain what seems to be contradictory emotions. Uh, this was the, the, queen, the Queen's great contribution to philosophy when she, uh, she said after, it was after 9-11, remember what she said to the American people? <coughs> grief, she, yeah. she said, grief, <coughs> grief, grief is the price we pay for love. Yes. And uh, it touched, you know, touched uh, the nerve. Okay, understand. So, if if you love, but you suffer or you lose, you don't say to yourself, "I wish I hadn't loved, because then I wouldn't have felt this pain." You don't feel that, do you? You accept the pain or the loss uh, as part of the the gift of loving. But the, but the the gift of love is stronger than what might be at that moment an experience of loss or, or grief. Good, yeah. So I think this is, this is, this is Pentos. And um, the tears uh, that Benedict is speaking about, uh, to pray with tears, this is, this is not, this is, he's a little, he's revealing something in himself or in his vision of, of the life uh, that doesn't come out very often or very clearly in the rest of the rule. 
But there we get this little insight into what he really, how he really lived and what he felt the essential purpose of the life um, was for. So tears free us from sin. This is a basic uh, understanding of the monastic tradition. And it moves us towards pure prayer. So just as, you know, when, as Jean said, when the tears come up, tears I hadn't shed before and I don't even remember, I can't even remember what I'm crying for or what the tears are expressing or releasing, but I feel relieved. And that relief is a kind of a purification. And that uh, the purification of the tears or compunction of heart moves me closer to pure prayer. Um, and of course, uh, Benedict, as part of that tradition, sees that you, you don't have these tears every time. Uh, that there is a wide range of emotion or experience in prayer over over time, over a period of time. Um, so they, these, even this gift of tears, which is a gift, not something you can fake or something you, so you don't try to cry, but when it happens, when there is this overflow, this release and relief, uh, it's transitional, like images in at the time of prayer, or thoughts, or everything that we refer to as distraction. So, and this is this is the teaching that we give in meditation. We let go of thoughts, words, and images. We could add, although it might seem a little strange if we said it, tears as well if and when they happen. This takes us, you know, into the meaning of what Father John uh, had in mind when he said, in meditation, nothing happens. And what did he say after that? And if it does... If it does, ignore it. Yeah. Ignore it. So obviously things are going to happen, but you make up your mind they're not going to happen, then you don't, you're not waiting for anything to happen. So you can come to the meditation childlike without demands or expectations. And sometimes uh, people can do that in the most unexpected circumstances. I was giving a talk to a group of business people uh, once, and uh, didn't have much time to meditate, but they wanted to begin the day with meditation. So we had a short meditation. And later in the day, I was talking to some of them, and one young businessman came up to me and he said, um, you know, thanked me for the talk, and he said, have you meditated before? And he said, no, it was the first time. And he said, it was quite something. He said, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, and he couldn't describe it. <laughs> But I could tell from what he couldn't describe uh, and that he had sort of uh, fallen through a trapdoor into a very, you know, uh, 
immediate experience of pure prayer or the kingdom of God. And he just didn't have any words for it. It was a new experience for him. And uh, clearly he was going to have to process this in, in the late Twitter. Anyway, a few months later, I met him again and he told me he was, he'd been meditating every day, twice a day since then. And of course, I'm sure he hasn't had that experience. He doesn't have that experience every time and he probably hasn't had it again at all and may never have it again. But nevertheless, it uh, made him aware of something he wasn't aware of before and that awareness got him into meditation. So, um, something, but the fact that he, he could fall into it so immediately and simply, I'm sure, was because he had no expectations. He hadn't read anything about meditation. He hadn't read, you know, books on Pentos, or didn't have any any sort of demands or expectations. He went to it into it just like a child would when you introduce a child to meditation. He just did it in good faith, and he went into the inner room. So, uh, but then we learn that any experience of that kind has to be let go of in the same way that we let go of other transitional things like images and thoughts and distractions. So, and this, this is an experience of poverty of spirit. And that's, that's at the heart of the whole teaching of meditation as we pass it on and as we practice it. Uh, and most people, I think, have never thought about what poverty of spirit, the first of the Beatitudes, really means. How would you, how would you, if somebody said to you, what, you know, Jesus is so negative, it's all about suffering, <laughs> suffering and death, and what was that film, The Passion of the Christ, you know, it's all about, all about death and suffering and giving things up and, and all this poverty and all this mourning. So how would you, how would you explain what poverty of spirit means? Knowing your need of God. Knowing your need for God, yes. Anything else? Emptying my, emptying ourself of ourself to just be present with God. Yes, so self-emptying in order to be present with God. I had a professor that taught us that it's like walking in with your sign every single morning and saying, I'm bankrupt without you. <laughs> I'm bankrupt without you. We couldn't hear that. Say it again louder. Uh, I had a professor that taught us one time, or he spoke about that particular uh, concept. He said it's like walking with your sign every single morning to God and saying, I'm bankrupt without you. Okay. So, I think this is, this is part of our, you know, why, where our, our prayer, our commitment to meditation and within the context of the other forms of prayer, it's why we can see this as preparing us to share, communicate, to witness to, in subtle ways, uh, 
you know, the meaning of the scriptures. That's what we're going to look at a little later, is uh, Lexio, the meaning of the scriptures, and how in the scriptures we can find a description of what we are experiencing. This businessman could not describe it. It's good, actually. Uh, he wasn't, because, you know, we can easily get caught up in our words and descriptions. But, uh, but isn't this what Cassian, what does Cassian say after, in the 10th conference? Uh, when he said, do you remember he said, we were very pleased to find this simple way of pure prayer, the mantra, and we thought it was going to be really easy, and then we found it was more difficult than the way we've been praying before, but, what does he say then? How did he know? What was the first sign that this was um, that this was worthwhile? This was producing fruit through the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures yeah. opened up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think he said the scriptures are more vibrant or something. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But he says I, 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 we found that we could read the scriptures as if we had written them ourselves, mm -hmm. or we could see. One translation, we could see into very into the very bones and marrow of the meaning of the scriptures. So, okay, so um, this experience then of of, uh, of compunction of heart and tears is transitional. We're not going to feel it all the time, uh, and even when we do feel it, it can be joyful as well as sorrowful. It is a cleansing of the heart, or as the some of the uh, monks uh, at that period said it was like opening the door to the bridal chamber. It's the opening of the door to the bridal chamber. And it's an abiding element or virtue of monastic spirituality. It doesn't mean to say only monks feel this. Clearly they don't. But it's part of the monastic spirituality that highlights and the oblate is somebody who can translate and communicate this to other, uh, to other seekers. It can be a bridge between this, um, this deeper uh, spiritual wisdom and experience, and to, to bridge that, to communicate it in, in accessible ways and language uh, to, uh, to others, so our community is doing. That's why we're a monastery without walls. We are carrying this, partly, we're carrying this, this essential wisdom of the desert and of the monastery. Um, Cassian, in uh, uh, the, in his conference four, uh, has a quite extended uh, description of the different moods and states that we pass through um, in the journey of prayer. Worth looking at, we tend to read just conferences, uh, conferences 9 and 10, which are the ones on prayer. But it's, it's um, I think, the oblate, we can get a lot out of the other conferences. There's a very good translation now, very accessible by Boniface Ramsey. It's a 
his book, but it's, uh, you don't have to read it all in one night. Uh, and Michael Casey has done a very uh, good book uh, on Cassian called Cassian the Monk. So Cassian is certainly, maybe with a little guidance, is a, uh, a very um, uh, resourceful uh, guide for us today. And in Conference 4, he speaks about the different moods and states, and he, he describes how different, um, different experiences can trigger this compunction of heart, or this opening of the door into the bridal chamber, or this falling through the trapdoor, into this, to that moment where we want to stay on in the oratory and pray uh, and continue to pray alone. Doesn't happen all the time, but it's good when it does. So he says, it may happen just by through, you know, through, the, through, through song or music or through the singing of the psalms. And the heart is touched. That's why, you know, when we, that's why it's a good thing. Uh, I think many of us feel it when we hear Gregorian chant sung very beautifully. Uh, it can also be done by listening to a talk, to a conference. And this is what conferences are about, listening to the talks of the desert, of the, of the fathers of the desert. So uh, by listening, he doesn't say, he doesn't talk about reading so much, but by, by listening to a talk, we can feel our heart touched awake at this depth as well. Or, he, he goes on and gives other examples, he says the news of death. Interesting, interesting um, addition to this. We can find ourselves open to this deeper level of prayer, compunction of heart, just by hearing of, of death. And the awareness of our own negligence. So that's a little bit, you know, that's, it also makes sense when you think about it, to be aware of your own faults, your own limitations, your own patterns, the things you haven't been able to sort out in yourself, um, these traits of character that are probably going to be there with you uh, until the end, uh, but which have changed in their influence over you by the way you accept them, by the humility of accepting them, then they no longer have power over you. They may still continue, you may still fly off the handle, you may still find yourself controlled by a certain kind of neurotic response or something, but, or addiction, but uh, the power of that fault is reduced, depowered, actually, by the humility of accepting it and acknowledging it or confessing it. So he describes how these different kinds of experience uh, can trigger this state of compunction or heart. Let's just end with uh, uh, something from chapter four <coughs> of, the, of the rule where um, uh, 
tools of good works, where he speaks about this. Um, uh, I can't find it now exactly. Anyway, he speaks about this daily remembrance of our past faults. Again, you know, to, to some people that's going to sound like just thinking about your sinfulness and how bad you are and, and how unworthy you are and so on and beating yourself up. But if we put this in the, in the context of this wisdom of the inner journey and of the, this dynamic of prayer, this, this particular meaning of, of the prayer of the heart, then to call to mind your past faults is not a negative thing at all. It is remembering um, yourself and making conscious what might otherwise be buried in the, in the unconscious. Okay, well let's we come back to some of these things later.